Hello and welcome to Prove Me Wrong Please. In today's episode, I discuss a topic very near and dear to my heart, climate change, with a friend of mine who is a climate and energy economist at an NGO in Washington, D.C. Now, I wanted to talk to Andres in part because it's been years since I last saw him when we were both living abroad, but also because the winter storm in Texas last week has brought the issue of climate change and renewable energy to the forefront of the national conversation, and I figured I would have a lot to learn from someone who knows a hell of a lot more than me on that subject. Now, for any listeners familiar with this podcast, you know that I typically seek out guests with diametrically opposing views from me on whatever the particular topic of discussion is for that week, but this episode is a bit different in that we're both essentially on the same page when it comes to how and why the next generation should address climate change. So if you only listen to this podcast for the disagreements, then you'll just have to wait until next week's episode when I talk with a pastor about what I consider the dangers of religion. Anyways, I had a great conversation with Andres, but I understand that there are those who may disagree with something we said, uh, and I want to remind you that you are welcome to email me at pmwp.pod at gmail.com if you want your thoughts shared in a future episode. So, with all that being said, please join me as I discuss why we can and must address climate change now. And as always, I encourage you to prove me wrong, please. Well, hey, I mean, thanks again for for joining. Um, I mean, like, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, I mean, not only just to catch up and shoot the shit, but also because I think given the events of, like, the last, you know, week... Uh, with regards to the the snowstorm that we've seen across the country, but most um, obviously in Texas, uh, I wanted to talk to you because you do uh, energy economics related to climate. Um, you work out of DC, uh, and so I I kind of want to start by just explaining like what do you do in terms of working for an environmental NGO? Because I think a lot of people don't have a clear understanding of like what your role is in, in government and decision-making. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's a combination of research and advocacy. We do a lot of research to compare different uh, policy proposals in the United States to decarbonize the grid, decarbonize other sectors as well. I mostly work power, but uh, we also advocate a lot for uh, bills who, that already exist. We um, talk, we engage with policymakers, we engage with media organizations, we host panels, we uh, do all kinds of events to, you know, get uh, policy ideas circulating. And uh, we just try our best to support um, plausible but ambitious climate policy proposals from uh, Congress and from the Biden team and from other sources as well, academia, other think tanks, that sort of stuff. Um, it's really vague, I guess. Uh, I can, there's a lot of specifics to it all, but I think most organizations in DC do some sort of combination of advocacy and research. Okay. And what would you say has been the largest challenge? I mean, Grant, you said you've only been in this position for a year and a half, but what, what has been your biggest challenge in terms of convincing not just like climate skeptics, but people who might not uh, fully grasp the, I guess, severity of like climate change in general um, to come around to, to your positions and it actually advance policies that your organization believes is are, are important. Yeah, so I think uh, one big challenge that I've encountered in my career, especially before, increasingly less so, is that people just don't, there's, there's people who debate what's the best way to decarbonize the economy, right? But then there's also all these stakeholders who just don't believe that we're gonna do it. They just really believe that we'll, we'll never have the policies in place to completely decarbonize the grid, to completely decarbonize industry, transportation. So you're not even debating which is the best method. You're just debating with them to decarbonize at all. And that's really frustrating because um, it's they're, they're on a much lower level, I guess, of understanding of the, the climate issues and how plausible it is to combat climate change with policy and with uh, funding for infrastructure and innovation. 
so yeah, that, that's that, that's that's one of the biggest challenges when people, as a starting point, don't think we need to decarbonize. Uh, Would you say like that mentality is more so the result of like ignorance and that like they don't believe in climate change to begin with, or is it more just they don't see a reality in which uh, overhauling the electric grid, for example, and investing in renewables is really feasible, or is it a yeah. combination of both? Yeah, I think uh, three things happen. Uh, one is ignorance, as you say. People just may not understand the severity of climate change. Even really important people in major firms or organizations, they may not truly understand how important climate change is. The other one is where they think that it's impossible to decarbonize completely. Like even if we tried, we wouldn't be able to do it. So we should aim for something lower. And there's a third group, I'd say, of people who may or may not think that it's possible, but see that the fact that other countries aren't decarbonizing as a reason to not decarbonize. You know, like the United, and it's and it's true in a sense that even if the United, the United States fully decarbonized its economy, you really wouldn't combat climate change if it uh, if it isn't also China and Europe and India and other countries yeah. that are decarbonizing as well. So yeah, I think it's a combination of those three. Uh, and sometimes, yeah, um, it, the, the policy is evolving a lot and the people's understanding is evolving a lot. So, for example, people's, um, people's arguments against decarbonization become more nuanced in time. For example, uh, Republicans have cited uh, critical minerals as a supply constraint for clean energy industries, which is a much more nuanced argument than what they would say before, right? And uh, it's an ever-evolving space, but I think those three really generalize um, what's going on. So what do you make of, I guess, the Biden administration's uh, stance on the environment? Because, you know, when we're talking like big picture, I see there being really just like three tacks to address climate change. Obviously, there's policy solutions and then there's individual solutions that, you know, you and I can make. Um, and then just like mentality sort of, which I'll get into later. But so like starting with like policy, what um, have you, what's, what's been your reaction to the Biden administration and specifically like, you know, he's already blocked the permitting for the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, he has rejoined the Paris Accords, which granted is more symbolic than anything. Um, and he's also, I believe, proposed like Two trillion dollars in future investment in renewable and um, public transit. So all these sort of like vague proposals. Like, what what has been your general uh, response about their um, plan moving forward? Yeah, um, <laughs> like as a climate professional, I only started working on this in early 2016. So it's only been about five years that I'm that I'm working in this field. But um, it's a really exciting time to be working in climate policy. Uh, what's coming out from the Biden administration is the most encouraging uh, policy push for climate that we've ever seen in the United States. And it's one of the most ambitious in the world too. Uh, granted, this is still just the Biden plan, right? It doesn't exist yet in legislation and policy, mm -hmm. but uh, if it did, I do think that we would be on track to prevent the worst, the worst impacts of climate change. So I'm really, really encouraged to see um, all of these policy proposals in the Biden climate plan play out. But that's it's it's a tall order, you know. There's uh, I'm sure you've read it. There's so much in there, and there's all these uh, political contentious issues in every one of them. It's a really complex issue. Climate is a really complex issue and it touches on all kinds of topics. It intersects with economics, policy, engineering. And um, we just really need to figure out the best ways to decarbonize as quickly as we need, because that's another issue. One thing is to decarbonize the economy, but the other thing is to decarbonize the economy in the time frame that we need to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. So a lot of people in the climate community have set as a target to fully decarbonize the economy by 2050. Uh, net zero emissions, uh, to be precise. So um, that's for developed countries. And uh, for developing countries, some countries have that target. For example, China has a target for 2060 for full yeah. decarbonization. 
And uh, a few select the uh, developing countries have also announced similar targets. Most of the, the developing world does not have a target of that kind. So it'll be interesting uh, once we get closer to that date, once we get closer to 2050, uh, how many countries will really, especially developing worlds, uh, will really step up their game. But uh, yeah, I'm going on. <laughs> the, the, the overall target is net zero emissions by 2050. That's yeah. what Biden wants. That's what the climate and energy community want at large. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned China because, I mean, not only is that where you and I met, um, but I I think they are somewhat of a good example of um, long-term strategic planning. And granted, they have the political structure that sort of enables that, you know, with their five-year plans and and maintaining power of, of over their government for an extended period of time. Um, but I, I also uh, think that we could learn a lot from them just given their rapid transit infrastructure for high-speed trains and rail, um, which is something that I know Pete Buttigieg has said is a top priority of the Department of Transportation. Um, so that's something that I'm hopefully excited to see ha- happen in the United States, but again, not too optimistic. Um, but looking like elsewhere around the world, I, I read a stat earlier um, that something like 40 countries have placed a cost on carbon emissions. And I'm curious, like what, what are your thoughts about implementing a a somewhat similar strategy and having sort of a cap and trade system in place for just purely carbon? Because in the United States, I think California is the only state that does it and it has been somewhat uh, successful and it's reduced um, their, or they've been able to kind of hit their statewide climate targets a few years early, largely in part due to this policy. And so I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on the cap and trade? Yeah, that's a, that's a whole can of worms. And it's uh, probably the uh, policy area that I'm most specialized in. Oh, <laughs> so cool. A okay. Lot, a lot, but I'll try to keep things simple. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it is, it is true that uh, we have carbon pricing in the United States. We have California, as you mentioned. California has a the most ambitious carbon pricing system in the United States, but there's also the REGI system, which is a bunch of northeastern states, which okay. have a joint cap and trade system. It's priced a lot lower than the Californian one, and it only covers the power sector, while the California also covers other sectors like some industrial sectors and, and whatnot. Uh, and it's true that many countries also price carbon. Uh, most so this is, uh, again, I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible. Yeah, please do. Cause I'm, I'm an idiot. So I, I need it simplified as much as. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> you, you, you work in a different field and this yeah. is literally my field. Um, what the biggest issue, there's a lot of issues with carbon pricing, but the biggest issue by far is that, uh, we're not pricing carbon high enough. The, the even low estimates of how much carbon costs society is at least something like $50, $60 a ton CO2 uh, emissions. Uh, most carbon prices are below $20 and they don't even cover all sectors. And sometimes there's a bunch of exceptions. And uh, yeah, so the most carbon prices are just not ambitious enough. And that's the low end. Really carbon prices are should probably be a lot higher than that. And that's the issue. The issue is that the times that we've tried to have uh, very ambitious carbon prices in other countries, uh, there's a lot of rollback. There's a lot of people who believe that it's going to cause uh, high electricity prices. And we don't even actually see that play out because most countries don't allow those prices. And the few countries that have, there's a few European countries that do have very high carbon prices, have so many exceptions for firms, for industries that are uh, in competition with other countries. Uh, We just really don't see the carbon prices that we need in practice. So whether it works or not is still up for debate. Uh, I still think it's a really good idea. Carbon pricing is one of my favorite policies to address climate change. But the big issue is, again, we don't have the political will to have a really expensive carbon price. Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, no. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that, that's something that I, I almost feel like, yeah, we definitely don't currently, but I, I could imagine the appetite sort of growing because it is something that I could imagine appealing to Republicans who want a more like market-based approach. And I think there's precedent in that 
we used similar like structures to price out the emissions of sulfur dioxide, like in the eighties, which contributed to acid rain. And, and so I, I'm hopeful that perhaps cap and trade will be something that has a little bit more um, of a possibility in the future. But I mean, I definitely understand that, you know, given the current pricing being too low, it's not nearly enough uh, at the current moment to actually encourage companies to cut back on their emissions. Yeah, so you're raising a lot of interesting points. Um, cap and trade is a market-based uh, approach to climate change. It's more efficient than some other approaches. A few Republicans have opened up to it. So in some senses, you can kind of see um, carbon price being maybe the best way to be ambitious with climate change. But there's a lot of things that um, in practice, it hasn't really worked that way. For example, uh, we just explained that there's a few select states that have carbon pricing. But the other way to think of it is instead of having a price on carbon, we just mandate the amount of clean energy that we need every year okay. until we reach 100, right? So those are called clean electricity standards. Sometimes they're called clean energy standards. And uh, a lot more states have clean electricity standards than carbon pricing. And there's a reason for that. There's actually several reasons, but I'm just going to go into a few. Uh, one is that carbon pricing is kind of framed around the costs. It's a tax. So just a new tax is just like unpopular. While clean energy standards are framed around the benefits. We love clean energy. So this is what we need, right? Uh, the other thing is that with carbon pricing, the costs are really concentrated in a select number of highly organized industries, highly organized uh, fossil fuel incumbent industries. And uh, the costs of clean energy standards are more socialized. They're, they're spread across society. So, um, but, but is that fair when so much of the actual emissions are coming from such a small sector of society? Yeah, no, that's another question. That's a, again, that's another, can, that's another whole can of worms. No, this, these are really interesting points. You know, uh, polluters should pay, right? So if polluters should pay, you should have a carbon price. It's just politically really hard to do it. It's, re, it's politically yeah. really hard to get incumbents to uh, pay the cost of decarbonization. And while there's other more inefficient ways to do it, like a clean electricity standards, those costs are spread across taxpayers, right? And uh, they will be a lot lower. People won't even notice them. They also raise electricity prices less and they phase out coal less quickly. So a lot of communities that depend on coal or other forms of fossil fuel have time to diversify their economies. Uh, there's a lot of nuance to this. There's there's a really big debate in the climate and energy community that we're just talking about right now as to whether we should take a carbon price or a clean energy standard approach. And um, I don't think there's a consensus, but I do think that the Biden team is leaning more towards a clean electricity standard than a carbon price. Would it be possible to do both? Or is that just kind of too complicated and it, he would need to kind of use his political capital on one versus the other? Yeah, so you can do both, but there's three issues there. One, the one you already raised that you may not have the political capital to pass both. Um, the other is that if your carbon price is high, like we need them, the it kind of overlaps with the outcome of a clean electricity standard. So they're kind of redundant. So you have two policies. Sometimes they're, it, it messes with the carbon price signal. Like you want like a very efficient price, but if you have overlapping policies, uh, it can be hard. It, it's kind of a moving target, what the right pricing signal is. Mm -hmm. And it's just overall inefficient to have two policies that do the same thing. It's complicated for firms. Um, it's, uh, you have more administrative costs. Um, it's not the end of the world. I don't think it's the end of the world. If you can pass both, that's fine. If that's the way we beat climate change, let's all, let's do it, you know? Yeah. But, but, uh, I just don't see, it's hard enough to get one of them across. Yeah. One other like policy, I guess, solution is just reducing the, the amount that our federal government currently subsidizes a lot of fossil fuel companies. Granted, I, I know that that's politically very difficult 
given the amount of contributions and jobs uh, that the fossil fuel industry currently provides, even though those are slowly diminishing, especially in the coal industry. But I read somewhere that, you know, one year of federal fossil subsidies, which is about like 30 billion, maybe it's less now or more for that matter. I'm not sure if it's changed, but could uh, essentially provide the equivalent of like 150,000 residential solar systems. Um, I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on the the whole subsidy debate? Because I think that is something that also some more of my libertarian leaning friends would be on board with, in addition to all my liberal friends who don't want to see the federal government propping up these dying industries. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And we're actually at this, we were at least, we were at this key opportunity to get rid of all fossil fuel subsidies across the world because oil and gas prices were so low that you could have taken away the subsidies and people would probably not even notice, right? Uh, most countries didn't take that opportunity. And uh, I do think it's really like fossil fuel subsidies are just inefficient by nature. They're one of the worst policy ideas we've ever totally. had. Yeah. Uh, I do think that you can get support to reduce them. It's just that we're at this um, political economy where you only want solutions that will create jobs. Yeah. So you'll mention something like fossil fuel subsidy removal, and people will say like, we need more jobs, not less, right? Or like, for example, with the Keystone Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline doesn't really create that many jobs, but they're concentrated. They're concentrated in a few states and few counties. And those people like will not have those jobs, right? Those states, those communities won't. So um, yeah, it's just, it's the tough sell. Like carbon prices is another tough sell in this environment because it doesn't feel like it creates jobs, even though it does ultimately. Yeah. Uh, you need things that like are really like subsidies for infrastructure, subsidies for research, subsidies for or like some sort of building. You need to build clean power plants, not remove the fossil fuel ones, even though I completely agree with what you're saying. And climate change to really be climate change, you can't just build clean power plants. You need to remove the fossil fuel ones. But uh, yeah, as, as I said, like, it's just, it's a tough sell, anything that doesn't have job in the title, basically. Yeah. It, it's interesting. This kind of reminds me of my previous converse, conversation in my last episode where I'm talking about the effects of raising the minimum wage and how the conservative who I was talking to was complaining about how it would lead to, you know, the loss of 1.4 million jobs, according to this CBO report. And my point was that Yes, the immediate impact would be a loss of jobs, which politically speaking is horrible. No one ever wants to run on that and probably would, wouldn't do too well if they did. But in the long term, I mean, it lifted, the effects would be lifting 900,000 out of poverty and closing the income uh, disparity that we're seeing growing. And so I think like, I, I wish that more people were able to kind of look further down the road because, and not just with regards to the minimum wage, but obviously um, subsidizing costs like this and just addressing climate change in general, uh, as opposed to just looking at the immediate impacts, because if we're only doing that, then it's gonna be impossible to plan for a target date of you know 2050, like you mentioned, which is when I think the IPCC said that we had to like curb our emissions. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we need to think more about the future we're just not by nature very future oriented. Like yeah, civilizations true. just aren't. We just think about today and we can't do that anymore. We have to yeah. think about uh, 2050 and beyond. Like what kind of what kind of things do we need to do today to have a sustainable economy by then? But, you know, that's uh, democracies have really short administrations that care about things that can deliver benefits today. That all, that all that said, though, I do think that clean energy is more popular than ever. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 popular among the public. It's job intensive and uh, people are a lot, a lot more understanding of the role of pollution in everyday life, how it can decrease efficiency, how it creates a public health hazard. People understand that there's benefits in clean energy. And I think uh, we didn't have that last election. Back in 2016, it really wasn't a priority for people. And it's, and I'm not saying it's people's number one priority, but I do think that people see it as something important and that's something that can deliver both long-term and near-term benefits. 
And I think that's encouraging, but maybe not enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Um, except for, I mean, I spend more time than I probably should, at least for my, the sake of my mental health, reading far right news, maybe not far right, but like Fox news, Newsmax, that stuff every day, just so I have an idea of like what that conversation is. And I think it's become pretty apparent over the last like week or two that there is like still a considerable percent of the country that is very skeptical of renewable energy. Um, Granted, I think that that slice of the country is slowly diminishing, but you know, when looking at what happened in Texas, for example, I mean, we saw Fox news and all these like right wing pundits freaking out about uh, the green new deal, even though that's not in effect by any means and just, more aspirational, if anything, but uh, more specifically, like the wind turbines in Texas failing, even though they accounted for a much smaller segment of the actual energy production and natural gas, as I'm sure you're much more familiar with, was the main culprit in terms of their failing grid. Um, so I, I'm curious, like, what has been your response or your your reaction to? the events in Texas over the last like week and the, the future of having like a, an energy grid that is um, more diverse, like Texas has actually tried to do over the last like 20 years. Yeah, no, this, that's, uh, so you raise something really important for me there. I'm surrounded by energy walks all day, like on, at work, on Twitter, a lot of my friends are energy walks like we know exactly what happened in Texas. Well, at least to the extent that someone who's not at ERCOT can know, you know, yeah, we, sure. know we know uh, what the problems were um, and we can talk about that and everything. But another thing that really keeps me awake at night is how do normal, like, and with normal, I mean like non-energy walks, how do normal people interpret this? Like, how is this playing out? And not only Fox News, but CNN and everyday people, do people think that it was wind turbines? Do people think that it is like a problem with decarbonization? And there are challenges to decarbonization. And um, you mean it's this, not going to be a seamless transition like overnight? Exactly. So weird, right. man. Yeah. Uh, it's just a tough sell. We have to do these really unpopular things. We have to like really do these really complex transformations to the grid and it's not sexy. It's not a sexy sell. And then this comes along and Texan Republicans are blaming it all on, uh, on wind energy. And I just don't know. I just don't know how it's going to play out in Ted Cruz's election this 2022. I don't know how it's going to play out for attempts to decarbonize the grid further in Texas. I, uh, I really need, uh, at this point, I'm at this point where I really need quality public polling on that. Yeah. See, I, what I'm curious about is if these politicians, if they really do think that the turbines were the legitimate reason, as opposed to like the state's just inability to winterize all the, all their equipment, um, and then, you know, segment their energy grid from the rest of the country in order to evade federal regulations. I like, I, I really sincerely hope that at the end of the day, they look in the mirror and like, all right, I know I've just been like bullshitting people for so long. And I'm just saying this so that my corporate donors back here aren't going to like pull their funds for my next campaign. But I, I don't know. I think part, a large part of me now thinks that they they have drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago and actually believe their bullshit. Yeah. 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 It, it definitely makes things tougher than they should be. Uh, how, so how, um, and this sort of gets back to like what we were talking about at the beginning, like how do you convince maybe not the Greg Abbott's of the world, but those people who look at what happened in Texas and uh, use that as an, as an example, like against further investment in renewables or just like as an example for why climate change isn't happening. Yeah, so uh, I think it's uh, bits and pieces. So we've seen it's it's really tough to convince a lot of Republicans, but people who would formerly describe themselves as Republican or would describe themselves as Republican today are sometimes becoming more open to the idea that the weather is changing. They can notice it. They can they can notice that the weather is being weird, and it's probably because of climate change that they've been hearing about this. 
And the other, the, the other really big important part of the puzzle is that the business and financial community is very much behind the idea that we need to take action on climate change. Yeah. And especially the financial community, there's so much progress that was, the United States was a really, was really a latecomer for this. In Europe and uh, mainly in Europe, but other parts of the world, there were uh, also financial institutions that were warning about climate change. But now it's really easy to just um, to just mention that the problem with climate change is uncertainty and markets don't like uncertainty. And the fact that we have so much risk baked into the next few decades is really something that we need to deal with both both uh, the decarbonization part to reduce the risk, but also just trying to quantify the risks, trying to quantify the risk of that uh, a winter storm, like what we just saw in Texas, is a lot more frequent now. It'll happen, it'll probably happen again before 2050, and we need to prepare for that. And that's just one part of the puzzle. We need to prepare for floodings. We need to prepare for uh, droughts. We need to, in all over the world, and What's really complicated about climate change is that the most the most economic damage doesn't really come from the physical changes that climate change is creating, but how those physical changes interact with our social systems. So, for example, you were mentioning uh, before before our talk right now, you mentioned that you were concerned about what happened in the Himalayas, right? Yeah. That the ice, um, the the flood that just happened recently. And that's important for a lot of reasons. A lot of people live in that area and it also affects the agriculture of literally hundreds of millions of people in that region. And what really matters is not so much that the glaciers are melting, but that so many people had depended on a specific weather pattern and created their whole economies around a certain area. And now it's they have this huge shock they need to either migrate to other parts of India or other parts of South Asia or other countries. And that migration may create political tension in the places where they arrive. And that whole thing, like just quantifying how these different connections are going to fuck us over at some point is just really, really hard. No yeah. one can really do it, but at least we want to start now. At least, uh, at least major financial institutions want to start addressing this and that's the real progress that we're seeing recently and uh, that's a little bit long-winded and it's not specifically republicans but i'm saying that the business and financial community which sometimes leans republican is definitely much more open to uh, to addressing climate it's really the regulatory capture in the republican party that is making them so hard to move on this issue yeah yeah i think um one of the arguments that I've tried to make, because I, I mean, I studied um, environmental science and international relations in college. And so like, I'm a little bit more well-read on this topic than like the average person. And so like, when I talk about the issue, the, the relation between climate change and instabilities that we've kind of seen rise up around the world, especially the Middle East, for example, with a lot of farmers running out of fresh water and migrating to cities without jobs and kind of immersing themselves in like, old cultures that don't want them there, whatever. Uh, point point being like, when I try to like make these connections about how climate change has geopolitical impacts and, and economic impacts, uh, I feel like I always just come away as being like pretentious and sort of like self-righteous in a way. And that's something that I'm like trying to, to work on, I guess, in a way, but also like, I, I don't know how to, to convey or use my knowledge um, that I've you know, gained over the, the last like 10 years in a way that's actually constructive and not just like further like building up the, the barriers between myself and those who are convinced that climate change is either like not real or not caused by humans. Yeah, again, when it's a, that non-starter, you know, like there's one thing, one thing is conversing with someone who knows that climate change is real and maybe doesn't want your solutions, right? There's some way to talk about that. But when they just deny climate change, that's the real issue. But I think it's uh, less and less, uh, even Republicans these days don't deny that climate change exists. We're making really slow progress in culture, um, in Republican culture around uh, climate change. It's definitely not as fast as we need it to be. Yeah. But there is some progress. Um, yeah. What I, kind of response? Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just like to piggyback off that. Like, I, I think like... You're right. Like only like 10% of Americans 
think that climate change is a lie or a hoax, but then like an additional 10% thinks that, like I said, it's real, but not caused by humans. And like another 10%, like just doesn't have an opinion on it. So I, I the polling is not as bad as I, I think it is. Um, because I always think of a different stat about how like 40% of Americans think that the earth is like 4,000 years old. And so like, how the hell can those people think that climate change is real? Um, but, but I guess I, I do think that changing mentalities is perhaps the best solution, albeit a very slow one to addressing climate change, because, um, you know, I, you can do a lot with policy for sure, but if you don't have just like a general population that believes in those policies and then elects politicians who support those, then you're not really going to get anywhere. And so for me, one thing that I've been trying a little bit like harder to do is just change my own life. And so like I talked about, you know, policy solutions, but also there being like individual solutions. And so for me, that has meant eating less meat. And I, well, for the last maybe like year, maybe, maybe not that long. Um, I've been eating vegan granted. I cheat every now and then, but the, the meat industry does a lot to contribute to, uh, um, carbon in the atmosphere. And so I think that's been the easiest way that I can kind of reduce my emissions. I try to use public transit as much as I can and just like talk about climate change in general with people. And I think a lot of younger people, especially even those on the right are more willing to kind of engage in the conversation when they see that I'm at least trying to like walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Yeah. No, uh, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point from a persuasive perspective, right? Like you show that you care about climate change, you make lifestyle changes. But um, one thing I would like to emphasize though, is that lifestyle, and I think a lot of people know this at this point, but lifestyle changes are not enough to get us where we need to totally, be. Yeah, to totally, totally. Yeah, we, we definitely need big policy solutions. But a big part of that is, as you say, convincing people that policy solutions are important in the first place, right? And uh, yeah, I think I think we're getting sort of there. Like, uh, it's just, this was a complicated year. We have the pandemic. We have the, um, the attack on the Capitol. We have Black Lives Matter movements. Um, it's hard to prioritize climate. But I do think that under all those, you can see that climate is becoming a much more important issue. And in a more normal year, and I don't know if we'll ever get one of those again, but in a more normal year, I think you'll see that climate change is like the number two or three issue for Americans. I'm, I'm hopeful. I know that it is like the top security threat um, for, a, I think, like 67% of uh, foreign governments when asked, like, what do you consider like your primary security threat? And the reason I, I know some of these stats is because I've included these in part of my trivia quizzes with my web app that I was working on. And so I'm not just like pulling these out of thin air. Although that being said, I do encourage anyone listening to fact check me on them because they might've changed. Um, but yeah, I mean, I totally agree that like we need a policy uh, stance in order to actually address it, especially given the amount of time that we have left to actually make an important change. I'm just saying that it can't be, and I think you would agree, it can't be entirely separate from like your personal change and just like an overall change in American like mentality about what needs to be done and specifically like what we as Americans need to do because we consume far more resources than the average person around the world. Um, and, and it's tough, I'm sure, for someone in Bangladesh to wanna feel as if they need to do much to reduce their carbon emissions when their country is sinking into the ocean and they consume far less resources than we do. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And um, I uh, got a taste of that. I lived in Ethiopia for a couple of months, well, three months. So wow. I, I worked uh, at the International Water Management Institute and uh, I talked to a lot of bit, a lot of Ethiopians about climate change and they're really not interested. They really don't want to hear about it. They, yeah. they care about development, right? They care about um, the country escaping poverty and they are. Ethiopia is growing really quickly these days. Yeah. But yeah, and you're, you're right. The per capita emissions in Ethiopia is minimal compared to countries like the United States, the European countries, Canada, Australia. 
and in that way in that way justice really is for those countries to decarbonize first and to possibly help finance the decarbonization in developing countries but that's a, that's really tough you know it's really tough to it's 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 expensive enough to decarbonize but then also to decarbonize other countries and it's not something that we can't afford it's just really uh, it's a really different level of expenditure that we usually spend on energy we can do it energy overall doesn't occupy it's and it's it's in everything in the economy but it really doesn't occupy that many of our costs uh there's there's other expenditure areas that occupy way more costs in the united states and in other countries as well so it's completely doable it's just we're not used to it we're not used to spending this much on energy this much focus on energy changing the grid this quickly having charging stations put in this quickly uh retrofitting buildings this quickly this is all stuff we can do but it's a change of mentality that needs to happen first you know do you think the um the Green New Deal is like a step forward in terms of changing mentality because like, as I mentioned, it's not really like a concrete set of rules or guidelines. It really, at least in my interpretation was more so just like a set of priorities that uh, we as a country need to take seriously if we're, if, if we're being real about trying to address climate change. I know it's like a, favorite punching bag of those on the right, but I'm curious, like, do you think that will help kind of move the debate forward or is it more of a, an obstruction? No, I think it has. I think it, I think it did uh, help move the debate forward. I think before, so it's really funny. Um, most of my friends didn't really even know what the Paris Agreement was until Trump left it. Really? Maybe not most, but a lot of my friends. A lot of my friends didn't even know what the Paris Agreement was until Trump left it. Your, like, friend, oh. your friend's like outside of work, you mean? Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, damn. <laughs> no, no, no. No way. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, and that that really helped people like, hey, this is something important, right? Um, and then the, we had the Green New Deal, which really helped people uh, put on the map that we need ambitious policy solutions for climate. And then of course, Republicans attacked the idea. They were going to do that anyway. You know, it didn't have to be AOC or, uh, yeah. you know, really progressive Democrats who introduced the idea of like a big push to green, uh, green climate solutions or whatever. Um, whoever, it could have been Biden, it could have been the most centrist Democrat, it would have been attacked by Republicans. It's um, now what we have to do is to present better arguments about why decarbonization makes economic and political sense. And that's something I think that's lacking a lot. Uh, of course, when you decarbonize, there's concentrated costs for fossil fuel communities. But overall, there's a lot more to gain from decarbonization for the economy as a whole. It creates a lot more jobs. They're very job intensive in, uh, industries. They also require a lot of in, uh, infrastructure that we don't have. And that also creates a lot of jobs, creates yeah. a lot of investments. It uh, increases productivity because we'll have new infrastructure that can increase productivity. We'll have less pollution, which also increases productivity. Uh, we have new dynamic industries that will require researchers and high skilled people from all over the world to come up with better materials and better solutions. and consolidate supply chains across the world. It's, it's really like this huge economic opportunity that it's only starting to get into the debate. You know, it's in Biden tries his best to emphasize, and he says it in a lot of his speeches, when I think climate, I think jobs. And that's something that we didn't have before. And I don't know how far across it's gone, it's gone in the United States, but I really hope that that's the message that Democrats can get behind. And of course, decarbonization is challenging, but if you focus more on the opportunities, maybe there's a chance that uh, the political capital to pass policies will lessen, you know? Yeah. I, it's interesting. I just today actually finished a book that I think you would enjoy it's called The Story of More. And it sort of wraps up, I mean, it talks about like climate change and like a more larger sense and the different ways that we can kind of approach it especially when talking with those who might not uh, think of it as a legitimate concern. And the end message of it was essentially just like, 
yes, everyone needs to play their part. And the best way to actually do that is not being confrontational uh, and trying to, um, you, you know, reach out to the other side and talk about the opportunities that exist. And the, the overall message is generally hopeful, even though all the, you know, stats behind like what we're seeing is incredibly um, demoralizing, I guess, in a sense. Uh, and so I think, you know, part of the idea of this podcast is to talk to people who have very opposing ideas for me, just so that we can try to kind of bridge the divide. Granted, I think you and I are very much on the same page, um, uh, especially with regards to climate change. And so this is a bit of an outlier, but I, I definitely think that education and not just like in the sense of like, you know, reading a book or going to school and actually studying it, but more so just like being open-minded to like what the different possibilities are uh, with regards to actually addressing climate change as a country and even as an individual uh, is the best sort of way forward if we're going to be like serious about like tackling this within our lifetime yeah yeah um so i guess like with that in mind and to somewhat wrap things up like what like what makes you optimistic about the future of like energy policy um, not just like in the u.s but just abroad general so a few things make me optimistic and I'm more optimistic than I've ever been. Um, I was actually quite a pessimist before <laughs> because uh, we know how important climate change is and no one was doing anything, right? But now we finally are seeing countries taking a lot more action. The, the public discourse is a lot more friendly to climate change. Major institutions, uh, for example, BlackRock, which is the world's yeah. largest asset manager, has taken a lot of actions on climate change. The Fed has announced a bunch of actions on climate change. Uh, you know, the major pieces of the world economy are, have embraced climate action, right? So um, I think we're starting, and we, we're, we're starting a little bit late, but at least we're starting. And so at some point during the past few years, it seemed like we were never gonna start. It seemed like we were, we were never gonna get serious on climate change. And we are now, and, uh, and I think a big part also, and here again with the opportunity, is that because we're all in recessions, like across the world, we're all in recessions, uh, the high job multipliers of climate change, of, of clean energy industries is really attractive. We need to fix climate change and we also need jobs. And now we can have both sorta. And uh, you know, this huge push to decarbonize the economy, I think that's why, they chose Green New Deal as their framing in the first place. It's a national project. It's a national project that can unify people. And I think that uh, the political economy is just really well aligned for climate change right now. There's so, many, there's so many other nuances about why it's a good time to act on climate change right now. Like one, for example, is that clean energy industries are very capital intensive. Almost the entire cost is just the initial loan you need to uh, set up the installation. So you need like a, lo a lot of people working at first and it's just really hard to get that upfront uh, capital. But capital is really cheap right now. Like interest rates are record low and there's uh, all these new institutions that are care uh, financial institutions that care more about investing in climate change. And uh, I think we're at this like historic economic and political opportunity where everything is aligned for us to finally take a big push towards the right direction. And uh, yeah, so I think those are those are the main things that keep me optimistic these days. And we're still on time, that's the other thing. Uh, we're still perfectly on time to have deep decarbonization and maybe prevent uh, the worst impacts, maybe reach the two degree or maybe even the 1.5 degree targets that the Paris Agreement has. Uh, those, those are, that's it in a nutshell. Nice, um, I guess, to tie a bow on it, like what makes me optimistic is really just like my interactions with other young people that I've met throughout my life. I mean, people from around the world, yourself included. I mean, you're from Mexico. My, my time in China, I talked with a bunch of Chinese people. I mean, traveling through Asia, I met and talked with a bunch of people and everyone for the most part was like pretty much on board that addressing climate change is a necessity. And I tend to get a little bit too like narrow-minded uh in terms of like my focus on this 
growingly like small number of people like you know the james inhofe's of the world who you know bring a snowball to prove that climate change is not real and i think like when i take a step back and look at the overall population and especially the young people who are kind of creating the next generation of policy i i have to come to the conclusion that for the most part everyone is on board with with what it's going to take um to actually address climate change and so that's what makes me hopeful. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I applaud you and everyone you work for, for actually being on the the forefront of the fight, because I think it's going to be an interesting next four years. And I, I'm not religious, but I sure pray that, you know, assuming Biden doesn't run again in four years, which I kind of doubt he will, that the next administration will be a Democrat or at least a Republican who is sane and, uh, places the environment as somewhat of a priority in their administration yeah but. well this this was great uh love talking uh we can talk about something in more detail in the future if you want and uh yeah thanks for having me yeah thanks man all right. Well, that concludes our conversation about climate change. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Andres once again for joining me. To be honest, I could have talked for hours on the topic, as I'm sure he probably could have as well. So my guess is I will have another episode sometime in the future related to climate change. So stay tuned. Uh, now, if you are a climate skeptic or you know someone who is um, and you disagree with anything we said in this episode, again, I would uh, encourage you to email me or message me on Twitter at Prove Please, and we can set up a time to actually discuss uh, your thoughts. Now, before I let you go, I do want to add a few quick stats that help put this issue into a larger perspective, which I think just better conveys the sense of urgency and seriousness that addressing climate change truly deserves. Now, coronavirus has killed about 2.5 million people in the last year. Now, obviously that's a lot, but when you compare it to the number who die each year as a result of just air pollution alone, which is about 7 million, it's impossible to ignore the fact that addressing our climate crisis and the way in which we are poisoning our environment is a moral imperative. And to be honest, I feel like those of us living here in the U.S., should shoulder most of that burden, given that we would need about five Earths if everyone on the planet consumed the same amount of resources as the average American. So frankly, I don't really buy any of the excuses that I've heard mostly from the right about why this issue is not as important as the overwhelming majority of climate scientists have for decades claimed it to be. And I hope it's stats like these that encourage folks to continue this conversation about what a more sustainable and equitable future should look like. Like I've said in every episode of this podcast, I sincerely do encourage those of you who are still listening and disagree with that statement or anything that I said to reach out so that we can have a more constructive conversation on the topic because honestly, keeping our heads buried in the sand is just no longer an option. Anyways, thanks again for listening and until next week, stay safe. Cheers. Cheers.